Spreading Cajun. Spreading Cajun. Cajun across the nation, pushing the brand across the land. Welcome to Ragin' Review, made by the fans for the fans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Raging Review Podcast, a very special bonus edition. We're going to get an education from RPI guru, Mr. Brian Benton, resident of Austin, Texas, Cajun alum, huge sports fan, and all-around just brilliant guy. Brought him on to uh, teach us some things and hopefully get some RPI education out to the listeners. Nick and Jerry were able to do this Really good interview. I was unfortunately not available, but uh, they killed it. So, enjoy. So, Brian, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, born and raised in New Orleans, like yours truly. 504 yeah. in the house. Got to show some Actually, love. technically... Uh, my cousins would say, you're not from New Orleans. I was, I was born and raised in Metairie. <laughs> oh, well, look, I'm from Kenner. Okay. So I definitely, uh, Jefferson Parish, right? Jefferson Parish. That's right. Uh, but you were uh, a UL grad. You majored, you got a degree and majored in computer science, graduated class of 1990. You went to grad school, got your master's in computer science in 1992. And now you are the VP of engineering uh, of an Austin-based software company. So a uh, lot of computer science, math, statistics. You're a very, uh, I guess you can see you have a very algebraic mind, right? Yeah, that I've been in software my, my whole career, and a lot of it has been spent in artificial intelligence and machine learning, which requires mathematics and statistical background. So when you, when you hear the term machine learning, it's really statistical learning. And so that's that's a big part of my background and what I do today and what I've done throughout my career. You've been a staple as a fan with Cajuns baseball and Cajun athletics in general. Did your fanhood really begin as a student? Did you go to all the games? Were you really involved in all the sports? Uh, what was your memories of following Cajun sports as a student that carries into today? Yeah, good question. Um, I was really into all sports, loved going to the basketball games. That was the Fletcher era, pretty much, you know, Aaron, Aaron Mitchell, Kevin Brooks and Cedric Mackian, those guys. And, uh, you know, the Brian Mitchell era in football and uh, in baseball, Howard Landry was there. I don't know if you remember him. And then Bollinger came in and uh, geez, we had some, some, you know, a good team in 87. That's when it started to get a little bit more popular uh, not a lot of people went to the games. I remember, uh, you know, we played a lot of afternoon games and every once in a while you could catch a, a TCU or an Oregon State there. 
And I just, I just sit in there with uh, my Calc 3 book or differential equations and work on homework while watching the game. So, you know, you had the space to kind of lay out. It was, it was a lot of fun and we were starting to be competitive. And, you know, you may remember uh, guys like Joe, Joe Slasarski of UNO. UNO had a really good program in the 80s. And I remember them coming to town in 87. We had a big series with them. And we beat them two out of three when they were ranked seventh in the country. So it started to get, you started to get some momentum there and some interest from the fan base. And while we didn't finish with a winning record in the American South that year, we won the postseason conference tournament. We went as a number five seed to Wichita, Kansas. And we, uh, we played the number two seed, Wichita State, got beat by them. And then we played a team from McNeese State. Guess who the coach was? Tony Robichaux. Tony Robichaux. And he sent us home yeah. packing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, no, that was really kind of the start. You know, once again, you know, there were some good teams in the past, but baseball started to get a little bit more popular. It was starting to gain momentum. And, you know, we had, we had a few good teams in the Bollinger era. 89 was a regional team. I actually walked on and played a little fall ball as a pitcher uh, in my in my senior year. Um, would have never seen the field, but, but you know it was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, you know we had some really you know we had some good teams and you know I remember the '91 team that was a lot of fun. Uh, you know a year where we you know we we won the tournament and. Uh, you know, had a solid team. That's where the South Alabama rivalry was born. My dad went to AM. It was fun eliminating them in that game after they whooped us 16 to 4 in the opener and and put it all on the line and gave it all we had with very little pitching left against LSU in the championship game. So, Brian, I, I asked Javi this question. I'm going to ask you how different do you think the results would have been? back in 91 or even earlier in those regional tournaments when instead of having six teams in a tournament, I think it was at the time having the four team format and then having a super regional where Mm -hmm. like you just said, we ran out of pitching. You don't necessarily run out of pitching now um, because it's a better format. How, I mean, how big of a difference was it back then where you had to go, you know, several days uh, against six teams in a tournament? Yeah, it's a good question. And you you had to have a deep staff. And so the teams that really, really had the deep staffs were the ones that could suffer a loss and make their way through the tournament. And typically those are the big schools. I actually think going to a four-team regional makes it a, a little bit easier for upsets to occur because everyone's got a number one and you don't have to have a four and a five. You have to have some bullpen and you've got to hit your way through it somewhat, but I think it puts it on par a little bit better than if you stack three power five teams in a 16 regional and they're loaded with pitching and you're going to have to beat two or three of them. You know, you talked about um, whether it was basketball or baseball. And and of course I can relate to this being from new Orleans was the old UNO rivalry. Um, I know in basketball, there was always Tim 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 Floyd whether it was in Lafayette or New Orleans, you had that both arenas were always near sellouts. Uh, Same thing with baseball, Bollinger versus Maestri. Talk a little bit about 
the baseball rivalry. We know a lot about basketball. Every time we talk, it was always, again, Marty versus Tim Floyd. And it was always for the championship or it was always for, I don't know, a top 30 ranking because both teams were getting votes in the top 25 at the time. They were both very competitive. But, you know, uh, for a lot of people who, who are so familiar with college baseball, you know, UNO was the first team out of Louisiana, I believe, in 1984 to go to Omaha before LSU did. Um, were were they kind of a were they the team that was sort of circled on the calendar? How how was UNO approached in the in the realm of baseball? Um, whenever we used to play them in conference, uh, whether it was at Lakefront, the Lakefront, or here in Lafayette. Well, in the early '80s, they were the program in Louisiana, and they would they hosted several regionals. I remember going out to the Lakefront. Geez, it must have been somewhere around 85, 86 and Fullerton's out there. And it, this is when it's a 16 regional, right? A lot of good schools out there. LSU was just really starting to get their footing and starting to build, you know, build the, the dynasty there, but UNO was there first. And, you know, as far as, a, in my mind, as far as a rivalry, yeah, U, UNO was always there and it was, you know, it, you know, you were going to get a quality opponent, but it was really when UNO joined the American South in 87, and they were on there as a conference foe in a three-game series, while at the same time, you know, they had a first-team All-American in Slisarski, and uh, they uh, were favorites to win the conference and ranked in the top 10. That's really kind of when it became a rivalry. Tech, to some degree, was a rivalry as well. I mean, they were always very competitive. But for me, I really enjoyed getting getting to play UNO every year, just like in basketball. And, and those are games you did not miss. And, uh, and every once in a while we get to play like a Texas or Cliff Gustafson and uh, some of the schools in Texas, Houston was always fun for me. So, but yeah, I, I would say for me, it, it was New Orleans, especially since it was a Louisiana baseball rivalry. Were you there with the whole brawl against South Al? I was. As a matter of fact, I was – this is when they – it was all GA seating, right? So I was sitting right behind home plate with my sister, who was at the University of Florida at the time. She she wanted to come to the ball game. And, you know, so I bring her basically to a brawl. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, you could see – you saw blood fly just, you know, 20 feet in front of you. It was pretty amazing. And of course, it all started in 91, you know, Papa Ramos gets, gets beamed. And you remember Chris Benhart got hit. That uh, was it Benhart. I, I think it was. And uh, there was some bad blood stemming from that six, three win over South Alabama in the 91 regional, including that play at second base where Gary Hotfield had a comebacker and went to two. And it looks like the, the fielder came, our fielder came off the bag, but we got the out. And uh, Steve Kittrell was howling, but uh, no, a lot of fun. And then, you know, what happened, that three-game series at the end of the year in 92 uh, was not a, not a conference series. At that point, we hadn't had them scheduled as a conference opponent, but bo both uh, Bollinger and Kittrell knew that this would be a good series to have at the end of the year to help each other schedule and have a chance to make it into the field, the, the field at the time. So, 
Um, and back then it was a, a field of 48, right? So, um, but no, that, that was very, I'll never forget that, that game. That was, that was pretty intense, especially Paul Bacco. Yeah. I, um, I've only heard stories. I think the, for me, I'm a little bit younger. I remember when my cousin Josh played from Oh three, I believe to Oh six. And he was on the Oh three team when we played South Al. And then that Saturday game, uh, I think we had what Nick it was like one or two outs in the bottom of the ninth. And we had a guy at second or the winning run was somewhere on base and we hit it and it hit right on the line and the umpire called it foul. Yep, yeah. That, that, was that, was, <laughs> that was my earliest memory of the whole South Al rivalry. And basically we got, we, we got the short end of the stick on that game because we should have won, but it always yeah. seemed the controversial calls always seemed to happen against South Alabama. It just, it was almost like clockwork every year you played them. You were just waiting for something to happen. That was the Corey Coles hit. In a yeah, that was, that was, the, yeah. that's correct. That right. was the Corey Coles yeah. team. And it seems like it's kind of mellowed a little bit, but even when you play them now, you can't help but rem- reminisce on the rivalry. And there's something about it, even now, even today, that still resonates with, with fans of both schools. Yeah, it was it was around that time in '92 that South Alabama became the rival over New Orleans to me, and you know, it was, now it, it wasn't fun enduring what was it like 17 consecutive losses to them, right? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I also remember getting swept in Mobile each game by one run, and at the end of the game, the South Alabama players gathered. Uh, on the field for their post-game meeting with the coach, and they all chanted, one, one, one. Oh, my god! So gosh. that the Cajun players could hear them. Wow. So, yeah. So it, petty. It, it just adds to it. So over the years, since you've you've moved and you've gotten a career, uh, I, and we, you and I have had the chance many times to talk at the baseball games. You try to make the games uh, as much as you can when, when – when you're able to come to town or if the Cajuns go play in your area in Texas, like, like this weekend, you try to go catch a game or two as a fan. And as someone, I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm really enjoying this conversation for someone who followed baseball kind of at an early stage of sort of the, 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 the Cajun baseball lure that we all know and love. It all kind of began in the late eighties when you really think about it into today. How if, I guess my question now is as, as someone who, you know, you graduated in the early 90s. But at the same time, right after that, Coach Robichaud takes over the team. He comes in, does what he does in the late 90s, makes a super regional run, goes to Omaha in 2000, and pretty much from here on out, the rest is history. Talk a little bit about how the baseball program in your eyes has evolved from when you were watching them back at the old Teague uh, in those bleachers in, in 1991 till today. Apart from you used to being able to bring in your own beer and your own ice chest, that part's changed a lot. But, but no, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate what Roe did in building the program and building men of character and teaching them the lessons of life, of life, and uh, and putting putting God first. I, I felt that was always really important in in his. You know, it was he was an, an excellent role model on how to live your life, and as as a supporter of the program, I always appreciated him doing it the right way. I was more worried about doing it the right way than when I want to win, but doing it the right way and and building men uh, into being good, responsible adults and people, and uh, 
was the most important thing to me. And so that that's why I, I treasured uh, Rogue and what he brought to our program and, and how he built it. And I get the same, same sense, you know, that that's happening with Degs as well. So, um, you know, I kind of viewed it through that lens and then, you know, building success and winning and watching the college sport grow across the country um, to the point to where you can get every game on TV now. I mean, if, if you really look for it, I used to call press boxes in the early 90s to get scores. And, you know, you couldn't read about it in the paper, right? Because it, it would never be in on time. I remember bugging the Oklahoma State Stillwater uh, box for the Oklahoma State USL score like six times one night. And, and I remember, uh, uh, I can't remember the UNO announcer's name. One time I was calling him, you know, for, for an update on the Sunbelt game. And he's like, what do you got for me? And then I rattled off a list of scores. So it's like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, having the press box phone numbers was good if you were a fan. You know, we're so spoiled, Brian. I mean, like you were saying, we have so much access to watching games now. But back in the day, you were lucky if you got the agate page, you know, if somebody called the score in and gave the box score so it showed up on that page. So we are spoiled. We've come a long way. Absolutely. From the dearth of information to information overload. Over the years, and 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 this is why uh, this is kind of the, the brunt of our conversation. Over the years, you know, the formula of RPI has changed. Uh, it's safe to say that the impact that RPI has on picking teams for postseason and kind of helping determine how games pan out uh, has become a really, really big part of college baseball. And we're kind of in the middle of that right now. For you, Brian, how uh, from the time you followed baseball or Cajun baseball back in the early 90s until today, were you always into sort of that side of baseball when it came to RPI and the numbers behind um, you know, whether it was certain scenarios or this team has to beat that team and this is the formula for this to happen. Was that something you always sort of followed since you were a fan or is that something that's kind of evolved as a hobby as time went on? Well, I've always had a statistical mindset. I mean, I was computing batting averages by hand when I was in third grade. So, you know, that that kind of stuff was, you know, I'd read the box scores and, you know, I, I would constantly without a calculator compute my favorite players batting averages and track their progress but um but yeah i, I mean baseball to some extent is a numbers game there, there's information to be gleaned from that and and that's really what artificial intelligence and machine learning is about it's about using data to tell a story and and training an algorithm to extract or Per, you know, predictions from the data that it trains on. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, with how numbers are entrenched in baseball, it's, uh, you know, there, it's interesting from, you know, someone's standpoint that that does have a mathematical and statistical background. And, you know, when you talk about RPI, first of all, you know, understand that that wasn't always part of the process. It didn't really start becoming part of the selection process and until he's probably 97, 98 timeframe when Wally Groff, the Texas A&M athletic director started, you know, to get interested in something he read an article on and then proposed it to the committee that they study and take a look at it and then started to adapt it. 
And, you know, and, and it's fine to start there. Um, but, you know, my, my interest became increased because I knew there were major flaws and problems with it. And I would find more and more every day to the point to where, you know, I was, I was writing and petitioning the NCAA to change it and pointing out flaws. And when I didn't get any answers or, you know, you, they just ignore you and want to continue to hold on to a 1981 formula that is actually, it's somewhat embarrassing from a mathematical standpoint. And so at that point, I started getting interested in just kind of working with a few coaches uh, in RPI-driven sports to help improve their risk-reward ratio and work with work the, the work the problems in the system to their to their advantage. So, you know, I, I will spend some time in every once in a while when it's of interest to me to, to break it down and do the computations myself. Now you have a site like Warren Nolan that does a pretty good job. And, and the complexity of doing something like that, it, it's not in the algorithm. The, the, the algorithm's dead simple. It's, it's really obtaining the data feeds and making sure they're up, to, up all the time and running and the system is stable. But, um, so, you know, fans have something to track there, but understand it's just a part of the selection process. It, it's an important part, unfortunately, but it's, it's not the whole thing. But a lot of the criteria for the selection process is kind of, it's tangential to the RPI. For example, your record against the top 50 RPI. Well, it's, it's a metric, but it's still RPI based, even though it's not the RPI formula. But, you know, some of the problems that, you know, I saw very early on and no one had a really good answer for, you know, I'll give you an example. Maybe, maybe it'd be good to ask Nikki this question. The question I would often pose to coaches, you know, that one advice is, okay, you have an opportunity to play two teams. And let's say in both cases, you're going to win the game. Would you rather have that game be against an opponent with an RPI ranking of 35 or against an opponent that has an RPI ranking of 175? What would your answer be? I mean, right off the bat, I want the 35, right? Yeah, that's what everyone thinks, but that's not necessarily the case. And, and you find countless examples where the team that's ranked lower in RPI, it's more advantageous to play them. So, so your RPI will go up more by playing them, or if you lose, it'll go down less than losing to the higher ranked team. So, and that's just part, that's just one of the facets of one of the problems. And the, and the reason is that the RPI only goes two levels deep. It only includes your opponent's winning percentage and your opponent's opponent's winning percentage as the strength of schedule component. Now, obviously the winning percentage component that's what it is, and it and it changed uh, a few years back when they went to home road multipliers and went away from the RPI bonuses against games against top 25, top 50, and top 75. Correspondingly, they had penalties against lower RPI ranked teams. So they went away. They went away from that. Now, I, I do think going home road was the right direction. I mean, if you're going to put lipstick on the pig, 
you know, doing home road was a reasonable thing to do. Although they got the factors blatantly wrong. There, there's no way a home win should be 1.3 wins and a, a road win, I'm sorry, a 0.7 wins and a road win 1.3 wins. And correspondingly, the losses reversed. It's not that much of an advantage to be at home and it's not that much of a disadvantage to be, to be on the road in baseball. I would argue that other sports are going to be a little bit different. So to that effect, the other thing I would coach people on is get as many road games against teams that are going to have good one-loss records that you have a high probability that you're going to beat them. And that puts the risk-reward ratio strongly in your favor. And if you look at teams like, uh, you know, you'll see some teams that have really good RPI rankings. Their win-loss record is decent, but they have a really strong opponent's winning percentage. But their OOWP is weak. They're They're doing the smart thing from the RPI formula perspective in that they are scheduling teams with good win-loss records that play weak schedules. That's what you want. Now, you do want a certain number of top teams on your schedule so that you can show, I compete against the top 25 and the top 50. But what you also want are high probable wins against teams that are 500 or above, the more the better, with a high probability that you're going to win. Well, to get that kind of team, that's a team that's going to have a weak schedule, and that's what you want. You don't want to play a team that also schedules strong. It's like you don't want to play an SEC team that's 25 and 22. Your RPI will not – good risk, good chance you're going to lose. A reason, you know, in the risk-reward ratio, decent chance you're going to lose. Plus, there's no OWP reward for that. So, so there is an art to this in doing it the right way. Part of it is scheduling teams that are going to win games that you know you can beat. In other words, they traditionally schedule relatively weak. You get a certain number of teams that are going to finish in the top 25 and top 15. You just got to log enough wins there. And then schedule, you know, have a, a reasonable road-heavy schedule because it's to your advantage. Um, obviously, there's a lot of logistics involved with baseball and softball, and, you know, you don't want to be road warriors. But don't, don't be afraid to schedule a number of games against teams that are, you know, have a, a 550 or 600 winning percentage that, you know, you have a high probability of beating. Even a slack school, you know, there have been years where you, you play a 25 and 20 slack school, you know, you're going to win. Your RPI is going to go up, even though they're ranked 240. Doesn't matter because your OWP juices you. So another example uh, this week if the Cajuns were going to lose a game in the Rice series or the Little Rock series, it would have been more advantageous to lose it against Rice, even though they, you know, their RPI was, was what it was. It's, it's the fact that it's a road game and it's only 0.7 losses, right? Whereas the Little Rock, the Little Rock situation is one where that, that game is at home and the penalty is severe for losing a home game. But meanwhile, their RPIs are very similar, right? 210 and 212. One final example is, you know, you may wonder, you know, with the 38 and 11 record, why Texas State only has an RPI 37. And I think they did a, you know, a good job from the standpoint of scheduling some top teams 
and they went out and beat them. Like they went to Tucson and took two or three from a good Arizona team. They, they split with Texas doing a home and home. You know, they took two out of three from Coastal Carolina, although obviously that's a conference series. And, and they have enough of those quartile one wins. But at 38 and 11 and you're playing those teams, you would think, man, they must have an RPI of 18, 15 or something like that. And the reason why their RPI is only 37 is they didn't do a good job of non-conference schedules outside of those top teams that they played because their OWP is below 500. That should never happen. You should never have an opponent's winning percentage below 500. And the reason that is, is they're playing four games against Utah Valley, Wichita State's down. Now, you don't expect Ohio State to be that down, but they're 11 games under 500. And you play three-game series against Southern. I mean, back in the days when Kador was there, Southern was a good team to schedule because they were going to have a good winning record, solid baseball team. They would compete in regionals, but you also had a good chance of beating them. That, that was like the poster child of who you would schedule for baseball. Now, you know, not so much. And, and of course, you want to avoid the Arkansas Pine Bluffs, and you certainly don't schedule them four times. So, you know, you, you've got a lot of situations like that that have uh, brought Texas State down. You know, they play Houston Baptist, and they're 13 games under 500. So, you know, so what I'm really saying is you tweak it a little bit better you have the same chance of winning games by replacing those teams that are well below 500 with teams that are above 500, but you're still going to beat them and you're going to get, you're not going to take, not only you're not going to take an RPI hit, you're going to get an RPI gain out of it. I think what's advantageous about the Cajuns, the way they schedule in the past, and it's actually helped us in the, in terms of whether it's hosting or getting a two seed was the fact that, we have scheduled teams kind of in the middle, as I call them, the middle teams that they win just enough. They're above mm-hmm. 500, but they're not, they're not world beaters. Right. I guess a good example would be as of late, like a Tulane. right? Tulane hasn't really been the Tulane when Rick Jones was there, but usually they're going to get above 500. They're going to win some decent games in the, in, in, in the American conference. They may pull off a win against LSU in the midweek, which in turn, or in essence, if you take two out of three against them, that helps the Cajuns. It does, but that's not the game I'm talking about because the risk of losing there is is reasonably significant. It's almost 50-50. Now, don't get me wrong, you want some of those games because they're I'm only talking about a portion of the schedule that you need to build and then right. this other parts necessary. But don't play Utah Valley. Play right. someone, you know, that's five games over five hundred or ten games well, over five hundred. Yeah. And that's why I used to that you're going that you're going to beat that. Right. There's an 80 to 90 percent probability you're going to beat them. And yeah, in the end, the models that I put together, they're about probability and risk and reward. Yeah, it, it makes, you know, and it's interesting because it go, we always go back as Cajun fans. We always go back to the St. Peter series in 2017, which in <laughs> essence, I mean, you finish the season 35 and 21. Well, if you replace them with the team you're talking about, we might be, we might've been in a regional. I mean, for all we know, I mean, well, at that point. Yeah. I calculated at the end of the season, our RPI would have been 16 spots higher and it would have been a, a <laughs> number, a number 35 RPI ranking. Wow. There so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it, it's too bad. I mean, but that's when you get into, 
you know, scheduling logistics and problems, teams cancel on you and all of that. So it's a tough situation. And, uh, and I think they wanted to open it home at all costs. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but, but that is an example of what can happen. Yes. This whole thing has been very intriguing as far as how teams schedule. I know that our fans have a demand sometimes to have a decent, you know, always get that one big opponent to come to Lafayette. Uh, usually we'll have one decent road uh, road series. Um, like this year we did the road series at, at Round Rock where we played Stanford, Indiana, and Arkansas. But, you know, it is very interesting, the logistics that you talked about when it comes to scheduling teams because – you're scheduling it's almost like any other sport you're scheduling this three or four years in advance it's almost kind of like a i mean yes yes and no you have some teams on your schedule that far in advance but every year you're adding teams months in front of the season so that could cancel it happens so yeah right but but i'm what i'm saying is though i think i think sometimes it can be difficult to do what like like what you're suggesting and it's look it's a great formula but it makes me wonder like how I guess sometimes it's almost kind of like you're just, it's almost like a guess, a guessing game. Yeah, that, that's that's why your date you with your data warehouse, you model it over time. And over time you see trends with teams and know the ones that have reasonably consistent winning programs. So I'm going seven to nine, 10 years back and looking at this, while also looking at coaching changes, who returns, who doesn't, things like that. Yeah, that was my next question is like how – yeah, I mean, seven to nine years would be a good point to kind of gauge for – Just just to see, you know, what kind of program they have in general. You know, yeah. it, if, if you've got if – you, if you're scheduling programs, you know, whatever level of league they're in, like, you know, it there are lower-level conferences that you can win games against – that they have programs and they're traditionally at the top of their leagues or, or near the top of their leagues. So those are, those are the kinds of programs that you would want to target with that part of the strategy. And on the flip side, there are teams to avoid too. And so for example, I wouldn't schedule a, a lower tier SEC school like Mississippi state. You don't want any part of them this year. They, the, the risk, the risk is very high. And the reward is almost zero. So, you know, why do you, other than, and I'm talking about outside of preparing your team, right? I'm strictly talking from the standpoint of what you can do best to maximize your chances for selection. So, so there's certain teams you would want to avoid that either, even though they're good baseball programs. So in spite of the RPI and, and I know they've come out, the NCAA has come out with the nitty gritty sheet, which is, kind of similar but not there's probably a little bit the formulas tweaked a little bit differently there what are some other factors uh that you can look at to selecting an at-large team or instead of just the rpi what are some other formulas maybe that the ncaa would look at um that fans don't know about well not really formulas more metrics and they change over time i mean the the selections are a little bit different than they, you know, 20 years ago than they were now, even in the era of the 64-team field in the super regional format. Committees change over time. They all have different opinions. Um, but, you know, there, there were times, for example, in the 2002 to 2009 era where 
you can expect something reasonably consistent from the the selection committees but some of the the metrics that you'll see you know other you know they basically start with they take all the 75 rpi teams at least that's what they've done in the past they put them on the board and they just start pulling teams off from there right and they will look at a slew of things but you know conference finish is is really important did you win your conference title that's really important did you win the conference tournament that's important what's your overall conference record tournament and regular season because sometimes that's used to distinguish you from another conference opponent um you know what is your record against your peer group and when i say peer group you may be being evaluated for a national seed or a top 16. they're not looking at quad one wins they're looking at top 10 rpi wins or top 25 rpi wins because that is the peer group that you're competing against but when it comes to just a general at-large uh, selection to the field obviously quadrant one wins are important as are top 100 rpi wins in general they're going to look at your road record they want to see how you've played during the latter part of the season so record against your your last uh, 15 games is important so there there are a number of these that go into it road record um even though the rpi formula overemphasizes road games they they still do take into account that road record and like to reward teams that went on the road and win on the road so it's almost like a you know a double benefit to you know scheduling especially winnable road games because you beef up that metric so you know those are those are some of the things and then when he you know as you work through the process and you get down to the last several ones the process will change a little bit more towards they're comparing teams right and they're they're looking for differentiators and it you know head to head comes into play or sometimes th this metric has been used to distinguish teams when all of the others seem to be roughly equivalent they'll look at cute quartile four losses right bad losses now the unfortunate aspect of that is your power conference teams typically don't schedule many of those so your risk of losing those is really low whereas non-power five teams schedule more of those games and you're going to have some losses so for example the cajuns have two of those losses today whereas you look at you know like a, a clemson or a georgia tech they don't have many of those games those are teams you would considered to be on the bubble even though their rpis are in the 20s but they don't have any of those bad losses so does that come back to haunt you you know things like that so i'm going to steer it kind of back to the cajuns and, and something that really throughout the season really annoyed me is when we had teams on the ropes and we had them beat and then we let them come back i'll give you some examples arkansas very early in the season and I get that was a neutral site game, so I don't know how impactful on the RPI that was. Southern Miss, Georgia Southern, I think Houston was another one. But but just looking at Arkansas, Southern Miss, Georgia Southern, how impactful was that to the Cajuns' RPI? Had we won those games, would it have a significant difference at this point in the season? Or was that, like I say, Arkansas was neutral, Southern Miss, Georgia Southern? 
I, I think both of those were were home series. So how impactful right. were those um, those losses that we could have had? Well, so basically what you're talking about is flipping a loss to a win and what would that mean? Right. And what I would tell you is if you're talking about two home, a home loss flipped to a home win uh, versus another home loss and win, it's the same. It doesn't matter who the team is because it's, it's only the winning percentage part. You've already baked in the strength of schedule via the loss. So as long as we're talking about home or road or neutral, comparing those, it's exactly the same. So, for example, flipping the Arkansas uh, loss to a win, that, that's a neutral. It's just one win, 1.0 or 1.0 loss. In, in this case, we got the loss. So the only thing you would do there is add another win to your total, recompute your winning, your winning percentage, and that's it. So let's say you play two neutral games. One's against Arkansas, you lose it. And another one is against, you know, you could be any random team. It doesn't matter if you flip them, your RPI is the same. As long as they were both home, road, or neutral. Well, that yeah. still would have been a little bit of a boost, I guess. <laughs> you really oh, yeah. Right. No, no, I'm not saying <laughs> But yeah. when people, people, and, and the question Nikki asked is, is one I get all the time, which is why I wanted to answer it the way I did, in that it, you, if you play the game against that team in both instances, you know, it's a loss in one case or a win in the other, the strength of schedule is already factored in. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's just about, you know, whether it's a win or a loss. Now, if you pull them off the schedule completely, that's a different deal because your OWP is effective. That makes sense. That makes a lot more sense. Um, I guess it's 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 funny because everybody likes to play transitive property game. Well, this team beat that team, sure. this team beat that team, because we beat them, we just should shoot up in ratings or rankings. And I think that's kind of the perception with RPI a lot of times. Um, big series against Texas State. I believe their number, what you said, the 37, 38 in the RPI. But ranks, you know, anywhere from 15 to 19 in the country. And I think, yeah, I, I think that's probably more accurate the way they've played. I would consider them in the ballpark of 20, but the RPI doesn't reflect that because there's some mistakes in non-conference schedule or I wouldn't say mistakes, but there are some disadvantages to the way they put the schedule together and they could have optimized it more. We're going to veer away from the RPI for just a few minutes. And, and you know, you seem to be very familiar with Texas State. You live in the area. I'm sure you followed their baseball team pretty closely, like you do the Cajuns, for obvious reasons, being in conference. And this is going to be a showdown this weekend. It's going to be a war. Um, Texas State, I kind, of, I kind of consider them kind of the a Cajuns team of the past. Really good, solid weekend rotation. They got some power. And through their bats, they hit the ball well. They're one of those teams that uh, the the ball carries out of their park, so they kind of know yeah. where to hit it. <laughs> so I hope we could take advantage of it like we did in Atlanta. It's a very similar park, dimension wise. I just, um, Brian, I'm going to ask for your analysis this weekend. What do you see? Uh, you know, the Cajuns nine and one in the last ten games. They pretty much took care of business against Rice on a five game win streak. Texas State eight and two in the last ten. Uh, they're trying to vie for, uh, you know, basically to to clinch the conference regular season conference uh, championship going into the tournament while the Cajuns try to vie for uh, a strong finish and a possible regional berth. Give me your analysis. What do you think about this weekend and what, what can we expect in San Marcos? Well, 
you know, I'm there are Texas State fans around here, right? You know, they they live in, you know, we live, work, and play with them. It's not just all UT fans here. There there's some Texas State folks uh, in my 12U league. Beating the Cajuns is a big deal for them, and it's not just baseball, right? They they they, they use the Cajuns as a measuring stick to some degree, and obviously they haven't gotten there in football. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, baseball and, and softball to some degree as well, baseball was, has, you know, had some success against the Cajuns, but they've lost a lot of, you know, good games against us in the past, including, you know, some, some postseason Sunbelt tournaments that they hosted that, that we walked away from. And what I would say is it's it's all it's always a good series and the fans get pumped for it. So you're going to see people show up for that series. Um, it's important. It's Texas State. They have a lot to play for, a lot on the line. Um, they're probably too far away from a regional host, but they could be a solid two seed somewhere. And, you know, they, they don't play in a pitcher's park like, like, uh, like we do, right? The ball does – get out of there. Yeah, it's depending on what the wind's doing that day, but the, the ball does often fly out to, uh, to, to right field, right center field. And, you know, you look at that power alley and it's like, okay, that's a decent sized college power alley, but the ball does travel. It's nothing like dish fog field, for example, where, where torched balls go to die. And, and, and that said, that's, that's what, you know, as, as an adjunct, that's what makes what Texas has done so impressive this year, you know, in all the home runs they've hit, they're pushing a hundred and, you know, that's not an easy park to get it out of, but uh, you're right. And that Texas state knows how to use their park. Uh, they, they seem to traditionally have some lefties that can yank it out of the yard. And uh, you know, they, they're probably either the top of the, the top two or three hitting teams in the Sun Belt, one of the best in the state of Texas. They they hit for power. They've, you know, and they're led by Dalton, Dalton Sheffield, who is not your prototypical shortstop, pretty small guy, you know, about five nine. But uh, you know, he's got surprising power, double digit home runs. He's a senior. You know, his defense is okay, but he's really a spark plug. Either bats usually bats two holes, sometimes he bats leadoff. But they have a very senior-laden team. Uh, you know, Justin Thompson, you know, Ortega Jones, several guys, two guys with double-digit home runs. They hit 69 as a team. They hit 300. They hit the ball. And and if Cajun pitching, you know, leaves some balls up, they're going to be at risk. They're going to have to locate the ball, especially in this park. Now, one thing, you know, what I would say is the weakness of Texas State is they will kick the ball around some. They're not a bad defensive team, but I would say they're mediocre. So if if they offer up some freebies, the Cajuns need to take advantage. On the pitching front, um, y'all might remember Levi Wells. He's, uh, you know, good, good hard thrower that he, I think he's out of LaPorte, but, you know, a Texas high schooler. He was recruited pretty heavily through some major programs, you know, a few years ago, and he went to Texas Tech and then transferred. Well, he's he's having a, a, a really good year. He's He's been pitching as their number two on Saturday, uh, but that's because Zeke Wood has been the Friday night guy. 
So they've got a really good one-two punch where they still have questions and they've been playing around with the Sunday lineup. And, you know, that's not atypical of a college baseball team, but, you know, they've had Tony Roby in that spot recently, but uh, earlier in the year they had Cameron Bush and he wasn't getting it done. So they, uh, they've had to make some changes. They've had mixed, mixed luck on Sundays. I think a better hitting team than ULM would have gotten them last Sunday, but you know, they were able to, to pull out the sweep. It's not a deep pitching staff, but there's some quality arms there. And you got Tristan Dixon, who I, I would call him the Bo Bonds of Texas State. You know, he's the guy that could come in either for long relief or middle relief and give you some really good quality innings to string it to the closer or even close a game if he needs to. And so they will typically bring him in to follow Zeke Wood if they need to, if, if it's a blowout, they'll let them, you know, go to Saturday. And then they've got Tristan Stivers as well, who, you know, very quality arm, more of the closer role. So, you know, they probably have probably two, they probably have four to five guys they really like, right? And then if you can get in to their pin a little bit deeper, that's when you have a chance. But if you let Zeke Wood and Levi Wells go deep on Friday and Saturday where they can save some of their arms, that's a problem. Overall, good balanced team. You know, they're not a Tennessee on the hill, but they're going to throw some good arms at you. They're going to hit the ball. And if you have a, a five-run lead in the eighth inning, the game is not over. Taking this weekend into consideration, hopefully we come out winning at least two out of three this weekend. Outside of winning the conference tournament at that point, assuming that that we win the series this weekend, outside of winning the conference tournament, what is, do you think there's, I mean, obviously um, we're being projected by some publications as being one of four teams in um, from the Sun Belt. What do you think our path is to an at-large bid aside from winning the tournament? What do you think we sure. need to do to get that at-large at bid from this point forward? Yeah, that's always the tricky question because it's not all the variables aren't in your control. A lot of it has to do with what your opponents do and what the teams in the vicinity of the Cajuns vying for those spots do the rest of the way as well, right? But the real thing that the, the thing I'm most concerned about is the three and six record against the first quartile. And now one of those wins and losses was Louisiana Tech falling 52. So if they climb their way back up, they, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You, you want them to fall, but at the same time, you would like, you know, if, when you're comparing to other teams, you would like to have that win. So the, the Cajuns really need to get those Q1 wins on the resume, which, which apart from RPI, that's why I want to take the Texas State Series. I mean, if we're really going to put ourselves in a position to make get to get that at large bid, um, they're going to need to rip off at least two. I think now it's not saying they could win one of you could win one of three. I laid out a scenario today where you win one out of three, you win two out of th against Texas State, you win two out of three against Little Rock, and you beat Nichols, but then you get you beat a Troy and two wins against Texas State in the conference tournament to make it to the finals and you lose to Georgia Southern, something like that. Well, that gets you three more 
uh, Q1 wins, three more losses, but at least you're up to six or seven, right? So that is a scenario, you know, I wouldn't want to be seven and four the rest of the way and have to rely on that. But at the same time, their RPI ranking, everything else being equal would be in the top 40 with that exact scenario. Assuming your their opponents are neutral and the the standings don't shift relative to the teams that are there. So everything else being constant, they would be in the top 40. So that's a scenario, but I'm really looking at that that uh, that tier one. Now, one comment I should make about, you know, you talked about the, the D1 baseball projections or baseball America and so on. In my mind, if if you're the 63rd team at this point, you're not in the field. You're, you're just not going to make it because there are going to be more upsets in the conference tournaments that's going to displace you. Those projections are basically a perfect zero stolen bid scenario, which that's not reality. So from my standpoint, they have, a, you know, they're not far away. They got a little bit more work to do, but conference finish is important coastal carolina is a direct competitor here you want to you want to face them and beat them in the conference tournament to separate yourself and you want to get this q1 wins against texas state and and i mean you're not i one thing here is you're not going to get to play both texas state and georgia southern on your side of the bracket so it's going to be one or the other and you would meet the other in the finals hopefully right but if you beat them there, it's irrelevant because you're in the field. So I'm kind of counting on or hoping for two Q1 games in the tournament. You've got the three in San Marcos, and you got to make some hay there. I was going to say, and that's a good point you brought up about the conference tournament, because to me, and maybe this is me being the, you know, the optimistic Cajuns baseball fan, but during the season, we've, we've only lost one conference series, and that was to Troy first series got swept by him and we've pretty much cruised our way through the conference and even up to this point I would think the double elimination format based on the way we've played I would hope that that could actually help us uh because if we're playing the way we are I would think in the conference tournament we can probably even if it's not against the best team eke a win or two you know Mm -hmm. before getting the double you know if we get double you know get two losses we get two losses but i would think that the double elimination could work to our advantage there because we can get some wins in the tournament sure i'm, I'm just going to throw a hypothetical out there and i know you just mentioned it about how there's a lot of factors and what your opponents opponents do but let's say we take two out of three mm-hmm. let's say we go four for four next week so that puts us at uh let's see we're 32 plus four that's 36 and 18 to finish the year um, I would guess, and I'm just going to throw a random number out there. I would guess that should move us up a little bit in the RPI going into the tournament. I would think. Yeah, not assuming you're talking about just at the end of the regular season. All yes. things be, being held constant, they would actually be at number 38, displacing Texas. Texas State would fall below them. Uh, all other things being equal, so your RPI is in the range, and. If you perform well, you don't have to be perfect, but if you perform well in the conference tournament and get some of the tier one wins, yeah, I think uh, you're setting yourself up pretty good, especially considering it's a real strong finish over the last 15 games, right? And, right. you know, that, that's, that's one of the factors. But also, again, 
you know, the two out of three in San Marcos being important because those are also road games, right? So right. they add to your road yeah. record. Yep. You know what? I'm just going to ask, what if we sweep this weekend? Yeah, I said it. I said, well, what if we go three for three? You want to talk about a boost in the RPI, I would think, right? Well, then you're talking about conference championship, and that's a whole different deal. And That's a lot, of, that's know, a lot better deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I remember that there were times, uh, you know, it was years ago, and this still happens to some extent, but the committee values conference championships, and there were years when the Sun Belt champion had an RPI in the mid-50s or even lower but they were the champions and they got the at-large bid. So, so it means something. And hey, look, if, if we're top 40 in the RPI and we sweep, we've got the Q1 record, we win one game in the conference tournament we're in. But really? No doubt, no doubt in my mind. But really? you know, that's a sweep. I mean, with a sweep, you're talking about a top 35 RPI at the end of the regular season. And, you know, with a couple of losses, as long as they're against good teams and a win, you're, you're still in the top 40. Again, all other things being equal. So um, you've got the road record, you've got a good tier one record, and you're a conference champion, right? You are, yeah. because you swept. So, What's concerning to me, though, I look back to uh, the disaster of 2006 for most Cajun baseball fans. If you remember, we finished, I think, 36 and 20. We had a top 15 RPI, and most people had picked us as an at-large, as a three-seed somewhere, and we didn't get picked. No, no, no. Our our RPI fell to 53 at selection time. It did fall to 53? It fell that much? Well, Because I don't remember being that low. No, we we were in the 40s. And it fell to 53, right. Now, one thing that happened, though, you know, remember, and we beat South Alabama in the conference tournament and had the head-to-head over them. Yeah. But they still got the selection over us. And do you remember remember what they did? After the conference tournament, they scheduled Florida State and threw P.J. Walters like 140 pitches and eked out the win over Florida State. And I guarantee that was what, that that really put some separation in RPI, and they couldn't overlook that differential, and that that got them in the tournament, and we were at home. But, I remember that year too. I want to say we had lost a few midweek games that we shouldn't have lost. It was one of the yeah, situations. There's where, always some of that. Yeah, there I, was, some I, there was the Little Rock that. blow up where we gave up what yeah. eight or nine in the ninth. Yeah, right. that happens. <laughs> <laughs> That's baseball. baseball. Hey, look, our, our moment was uh, ULM this year, so we always have at least a few of those a year. Uh, yeah, that comes I, I wasn't very points. happy that night, but that's not <laughs> that wasn't Little Rock. That was a different yeah. deal. Well, it's it's interesting because, like you mentioned, one game. I mean, you talk about how South Alabama played Florida State, and that was the difference, even though we won the head to head. And it makes me wonder, like, when these selection committees look at these things, especially a mid major, right? It's easier to look mm-hmm. at a a bigger school, and you look at their conference. But like, let's take the Sun Belt. Uh, the Sun Belt. As of recently, hasn't been quite up to par, but this year they've really kind of risen back up to that reputation as a good, decent mid-major conference. And I'm, I'm assuming next year with the four schools coming in, which includes Southern Miss and Old Dominion, it's only going to get better. But uh, Brian, when you look at schools, we were talking about how we might have four teams into uh, the regional uh, as a possibility. 
how much of a factor does a mid-major conference play in like the Sun Belt that would say, okay, we, you know, if it's between, I don't know, Coastal Carolina and let's say we'll just go middle of the pack Big Ten school or middle of the pack SEC school, seeing that the Sun Belt is a top, maybe a top five conference come selection day, I would assume that plays a huge role there. It's going to give the committee more confidence that they're making the right choice, I would say. I mean, one thing you got to think about is committee doesn't want egg on their face, right? They want to go in there and select the right field, but they don't want to look like buffoons. So they're, you know, they're going to, they're going to gather as much data as they can to make the right choice. So, you know, if you, if you have a conference that's five or six in the RPI and more importantly, the members of that conference had, had some good quality wins in which they have a measuring stick. Um, I think that goes a long way. And of course, you know, there's always stuff, there's politics of the committee, committee makeup, all that stuff. You can't control it, you, you know, and it can change from year to year. You don't know. Um, but I've definitely seen many years where the committee opted to go for a, a mid-major over a middling to lower tier power conference school. And as is typical with anything, you can craft the story based on the myriad of metrics that are out there to come to whatever conclusion you want, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, maybe it's some pressure because they let a couple of power schools in the, the year before, but, um, but no, it, it happened. I mean, it happens on both sides from time to time, but in the end, I think it comes down to the resume and, and, you know, and, you know, the conference has something to do with it. I think probably has more to do with how many, how many teams and the committee will tell you that they don't pay attention to how many are coming in for a conference. Like if Lies. they're letting four from the Sun Belt. I, I don't believe that at all. Lies. Lies. <laughs> they, I mean, if, if they're looking at, you know, the Sun Belt and another conference that may be higher or lower and they've got three teams in from the conference, I think that weighs into the thinking to some degree. It's just speculation on my part, but I, I, I think it does. So, but in the end, the best thing you can do is build your resume and, and try to try to pad it with the metrics that are most important to the committee that demonstrate that you can compete against the field that they're putting together. And the best way to do that is to have those metrics to prove that I've got quartile one wins. I've got quartile two wins. I have the overall RPI to be in the discussion. And how did I do against that top competition? How did I do in my conference? Things like that. That's, that's going to be the arbiter. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and me, Nick, and Josh have been kind of talking about this whole entire scenario and what we need to do and what this team needs to do. And really, I, I think at the end of the day, we we just want to see our team back in the regional. It's been six years. It's been too long. And, and really, you know, Coach Dex said in the beginning of the year and we were laughing about it because, you know, it creates debate when your team wasn't – when we weren't winning in the beginning of the season, how we said we were a regional team. But as of the last – I want to say I think we're 21-6 and six – since uh, we had that nine and 11 record. So um, last 20 something games, we look pretty good and look like a regional team. What are your thoughts on our team right now? How do you like the way we look? And, and do you think that we can, we can make a run if we make a regional? Well, you certainly like the offensive production uh, coming alive. Um, I love the way Julian Brock's been playing. I mean, just a stud behind catcher. 
one of the reasons I'd like to get into regionals, I would love to see an SEC team try to run against them and and watch the surprise of their eyes when they get to gun down at second. You know, the kind of year that Roquefort's having and Heath Hood is really coming on. I mean, all of a sudden, it, it just looks like the game's slowing down for them. They're seeing the pitches better. And I like the fact that uh, we're starting to develop a little bit more depth in our bullpen. You know, we're, we're starting to get some guys step up, especially young guys like like Toy. Austin Perrin coming on is huge. I mean, <laughs> he a bit lost early in the year, wasn't finding the plate. Uh, now the location's there. Uh, the, the curve is really good. And he's going to be an important part of the equation in those middle innings, whether it's a conference tournament or it's the San Marcos series or it's a regional. You know, guys like that. And, you know, you know, we know what we're getting out of Bo Bonds and Hammond. We just need a little bit more there to support those guys because if you spend Bo Bonds three or four innings on a Friday, he's not coming back Saturday and he may not come back Sunday. So, you know, you need other guys that can step in and fill those roles because we don't have starters that are going to go nine, right? We're, you know, maybe we get five or six and they give you good quality innings. But we, those, those starter roles, I think, tend to throw more pitches this year than some of the teams of the past. You think about it like a Hunter Moody or a Buddy Glass or some of those pitchers from way back then, you know, they they could go seven, eight innings and their pitch counts were, you know, maybe 80 or 90 or something like that. Whereas, you know, we're, we're just needing more pitches this year to get it done. So, you know, when that happens, I, I just think you just need a little bit more depth and I'm glad to see us developing it. And I think that was one of the advantages of the Rice series. It's really nice when you can get up on a team and then, you know, start throwing some other arms. The way Toy did this weekend, it's, a, it's important to get that work. And uh, I, I like how some of the pitchers are starting to come around. So, you know, it gives you a chance. And I like the defense up the middle. I mean, what can you say about DeBarge, man? It's, you know, the athleticism and, and the arm that he has and the ability to throw – off balance in the air and squaring his shoulders in the air and delivered the throw to first. You can't teach that. No. So as a true freshman um, too, as a true freshman. Yeah. And, and one of my gauges also to freshmen were how quickly did they develop the ability to hit for average? And did they have any power their freshman year? And you kind of go back to Lucroy and you saw sparks of that as freshman year. And then he really tore it up his sophomore and junior years. I think you're starting to see that from DeVarge. And he, he's uh, got some power to his swing. He's, he, he's got a little power that you he, don't recognize. No, he's yeah. not big, you there. know, but yeah, for sure. But, I, I, I'll be honest with you, you know, going into this weekend, I, I know you had mentioned that, you know, look, we all know Texas state has some power hitters, but I, at the same time, I don't know if they've seen a team like us other than, when Georgia Southern went to San Marcos, I don't know if they've seen the power in our bats. I, I think that can actually, we can, I think we, I think we're good enough man for man to counter their bats. I think it's really depending on our bullpen. If our bullpen can come around, I think we have a shot well, to make this a fun series. We can't give up a bunch of, bunch of free passes. You know, we've got to limit the walks, Absolutely. limit, limit the, the, the hit by pitches because they will take advantage of it. And now I, you know, as far as Georgia Southern, I think that's a pretty good litmus test 
they they hit the ball. <laughs> they they're very capable of hitting the ball when they've got enough pitching uh, to beat you. And they went in there and they got it done. So mm-hmm. you know, by by no means is this unwinnable by any stretch. I think it's going to be a good series, but uh, you know they're going to they're going to have to play clean baseball and they can't give a, a bunch of free passes. And if they make mistake pitches, yeah, we have a chance to take it out of the yard against them. You know, it's it's a little bit more friendly hitters ballpark. Same thing. You know, I'm I'm really hoping Schultz has some of the stuff when you know the the nasty slaughter and the fastball and that he's able to keep just above the knees instead of being up at the waist because they have some guys that yeah. don't yank it out on them. So yeah, even sure. though even though it's 94 miles an hour, it's just going to leave faster. So. Yeah, I was looking at their schedule, and um, Texas State is – they've been winning their games, but the way they've been winning their games is kind of like the way we faced uh, UTA last week. You know, you go watch them against Little Rock, and it took everything, every ounce in their in their body to, to pull the Friday night game. And then it's, on Saturday, they score 30 runs. Uh, same thing against, I believe it was yeah, but UTA. That's, that's, that, but that's Hayden Arnold on Friday night versus a big drop-off to their number two. So, but I'm um, at the same time, yeah. that's still like if you look at the dynamics of some of the Texas State scores, you know, they, they maybe it's the, because they're facing good pitching, but I'm seeing similarities between our team and theirs, is what I'm saying when I look at the scores. Yeah. You know, that's definitely, I think overall, a it's a long season, and you're going to have your valleys and, and your peaks. And, the, and you remember the 2000 season, we're cruising along and we roll in their Little Rock and get swept. Yeah. <laughs> How do you explain yeah. that? I know it happens. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the true mark of a, a champion here is that consistency and they're able to overcome those times when they're not playing at their best and still finding ways to win. And if you're finding ways to win, and Texas State has found their ways to win, they're 20 and four. So I, I look a lot less at the scores than I do what the results are. You know, are, are they winning? Where are they winning? Who are they beating? Is their, is their lineup healthy? Are they ready to go? So, Brian, I have one last question for you that has nothing to do with the Cajuns, nothing to do with RPI, nothing to do with really anything that we've talked about, except for something you brought up earlier that that got this question in my head, and I want to know what you think about it. You talked about machine learning. I think you might have even mentioned artificial intelligence. What are your thoughts on the rumors that that Major League Baseball will get rid of human umpires and transition that to an AI type of, I don't know, I, if they're going to have a computer set up behind home plate, however they do it, but transition to more of like an artificial intelligence umpiring crew versus having the human element. What, how do you feel about that being in that type of business? Uh, I don't like taking away the human element of the game. AI and machine learning, uh, it's, it's a tool to be used that can solve some problems and it can be wielded well, and it can be wielded not so well. <laughs> you know, there, there are advantages and disadvantages to it. But, you know, if, if they do implement something like that, it would have to be something that could be easily discernible to the viewer on TV. And when you talk about a three-dimensional plate to where the ball can cross any part of that plate between the knees and just below the waist and be able to account for that and illustrate it visually to where TV viewers can interpret what's going on 
without having to think too much that it'd be interesting to see how they do it. I guess I should say. Yeah. Um, I'm scared. That's, that's where it's going. And, and of course that would trickle down. I'm sure to, I mean, we'd probably save money because, you know, we can only have three umpires in Sunbelt Conference play now. So I'm sure you, you put one computer out there to make all the decisions and you're, you're saving a lot of money. But uh, regardless, I think that's where we're going. It's unfortunate, but I'm with you. Uh, don't take the human out. Who, who's Arl Weaver going to be able to kick dirt on? Right. Who are we going to scream at? Like, are we going to say, come on, Blue? It's going to be, come on, PC. I don't know. That just, come on, that robot. Yeah, yeah. I, I you think Steve, Steve Kittrell would be lost without Brian it has been a true pleasure uh I'll be honest with you I learned a ton tonight from the whole RPI conversation and the different metrics and the different um analytics that go into this it really is a science and uh you know that's why we have people like you to come on because you seem to have a good hand on it and it's uh it's a passion of yours and it's a, you're, you're a passionate Cajuns fan as well. So uh, we want to thank you for coming on. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Please bring us some luck in San Marcos because we definitely will need every ounce of help and luck and, and spark that we need to uh, to take care of business. And uh, hopefully come regional time in the next few weeks, we can maybe have you back on if you want to come back on and yeah, uh, sure. Cajuns, we're in the hunt. So Yeah, as far as this weekend, uh, I'll try to bring my son Preston. Maybe that'll bring some luck. And then... My brother Brad and his wife Lauren and their new baby Remy may may come make a, a uh, appearance as well. So if they show up, I'm pretty sure they're going to win. So we'll see. Bring them all. Bring 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 the whole family. Heck, if they bring all yeah. the luck, the more the merrier. But Brian, safe travels this weekend. Enjoy the game. Uh, I will be looking for you on TV. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, thanks guys. Enjoyed it.